Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer, engineer, call screener, co-host. Any other titles you got there? Uh, Giants, 49ers, Warriors fan. All right, you're you're interrupting my opening. Uh, Chris Morales. (laughs) 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call in to speak to us or our guests. If you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our website, ocgworks.org. That's O-C-G-W-O-R-K-S dot O-R-G. And click on the OCG Radio Live button. Or you can also go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. You don't have to call in on the call-in line to listen to the show unless that's your only means. And by all means, do so. Well, Mr. Producer... Here we are. Time for our happy recap. Little happy recap on tap. By the way, just so the audience knows, a soundbite is coming. We do the happy recap every show, and I've been looking for a particular soundbite, trying to um, surprise the host with. But I'll tell you, this soundbite is not easy to find. <laughs> I know what he's looking for, but he's going to reach <laughs> way back into the seventies to find. It. All right. Uh, so last week uh, we had a house meeting. Uh, I took the opportunity to pontificate about the uh, attitude of those currently in treatment or seeking treatment, about providers believing it's their role to uh, save people from themselves rather than encourage people to take responsibility for their own recovery, and about the new system uh, of this business of providing treatment and how it's going to work under the Affordable Care Act and how it's uh, making it more and more difficult. So that's what the house meeting was about. Uh, During our uh, recovery support time, we had some great questions from callers and and writing questions, especially a couple on the role of a higher power or not in the uh, recovery process, which provoked a lot of thought. So we really appreciate those uh, thought-provoking 
uh, questions. Absolutely. And we want to encourage our listeners and followers to continue to not only listen to the show, we really appreciate that, but also to continue to call or write in your recovery-related questions for our Recovery Support Time segment. You can do that uh, by calling 646-564-9909 or uh, sending an email to ocgworkca at gmail.com or messaging us on our Facebook forward slash OCG radio page. There's a lot of ways to get through. A lot of ways to get there. Or uh, I think you can use a drone, drone now. <laughs> right? Yeah, drop off a drop, message in flight. Drop it off at a secret studio location. Uh, all right, so today we're going to uh, switch it up on you. we got a, a nice uh, interview on top. We're going to uh, hand, hand the reins over to uh, my co-host, Mr. Morales, who will uh, take it over from there. Sir, it's all yours. Absolutely. I've been waiting for this moment. Heavy lies the crown, so to speak, so be careful what you ask for. But uh, I'm excited about this today, Um, especially we have a really great guest on for everybody who is listening. The topic is going to be about substance abuse and mental health and the connection between the two. And so a long time ago, um, and I'll use the term rehab. I know that's a term that I use kind of loosely there, but a long time ago, that format, uh, you know, dealt specifically in abstaining from using drugs, and we were just looking at getting clean and sober, and there was not a very big mental health component um, a a while back. We started to see an integration of the mental health component, and as we saw it begin to be integrated and, and accepted as a new model or the best model going, for people trying to recover from drugs and alcohol. Um, in today's landscape, that's basically all you see. There's not too much uh, out there in the way of a program that is just going to attack a substance abuse issue without looking at the mental health component. So the two kind of go hand in hand now. Hence the title, The Chicken or the Egg. We're taking a look at maybe what comes first in the patient as they present. Is it the mental health issue that brought upon the substance abuse issue or vice versa. Anyway, that being said, I am very excited to um, introduce to you guys a very, very special person, a great guest, Dr. Lene Hymas. She is a professor at Solano Community College. She teaches a wide breadth of psychology courses. Uh, She also happens to be on the leadership team and is a a director of Our Common Ground. So without further ado, I give to you guys Dr. Lene Jaimez. Lene, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, we we ought to thank you for being on because Mm -hmm. this is really, uh, really exciting for us. Um, You know, we've been uh, doing a couple of interviews here and having some people on as I'm, I'm not sure, but I think you heard we had some old Daytop people on. And then uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. Bruja, was on not too long ago. So we're really excited to have you on today. Thanks. So yeah. So without further ado, we're gonna we're gonna hit you with some questions here. The first question we have for you is: When was it in your life that you recall having made the decision to help others as a career choice? Um. You know, that's an interesting question. It wasn't actually until probably the first semester when I was in graduate school as a graduate student uh, studying psychology. You might think that I would have made that decision 
um, prior to going to graduate school in psychology. But my uh, original goals in psychology were to um, teach psychology and do research. But my experience in graduate school doing clinical work was just so powerful. Um, it was at that point that I actually became interested in um, doing more therapy and actually helping people. Not that I wouldn't have helped people by doing research and teaching, but uh, in terms of actually doing clinical work, it was uh, the first year of my graduate training where I was inspired um, to become more of a provider a practitioner rather than a researcher. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. You're right. That is, uh, I guess, a little later than most people might expect um, to have graduate school be the time where you switch courses, so to speak. But uh, we're very happy that you did, for sure. And then uh, coming to being an employee of Our Common Ground, um, Our Common Ground, as we've told some of the listeners, uh, functions off of a TC model, uh, the therapeutic community. And we're wondering if you had heard of the TC or what the TC was prior to becoming an, uh, becoming an employee of Our Common Ground. Um, I had heard of the therapeutic community model uh, in textbooks. I had read about the milieu treatment models, and the therapeutic community uh, was listed and described. Uh, so I had read about it, never seen one. Um, in fact, uh, we kind of thought they were a thing of the past, Okay, and and so that leads me to an interesting that leads me to an interesting question. How did the real deal compare to uh, what it is that you had read in textbooks? You know, um, it was absolutely fascinating, and I was very impressed by the therapeutic community uh, model. I came when I first came to our common ground. We were daytop at the time, and. Uh, I came for an interview, and then I had lunch, and then I observed Encounter Group and uh, just sort of hung out in the community. And watching it operate, and this was with adolescents, this wasn't even with adults, I was so impressed by um, how effective it was, how um, it worked really without staff intervention. And these were adolescents again, and they were, each and every one of them were doing their job uh, when lunch was over, they called off the tables, boom, everybody was up, the dishes were you know, on their way to the sink, and everybody was uh, sweeping, mopping, wiping, cleaning, picking up. Um, so it was quite impressive, much more impressive in real life than uh, in the textbook. All right, wow, that's that's really interesting to hear. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, hi, Lenny, this is Orville. I just need to interject. Hi, I just need to interject one question that uh, during your first exposure to to the TC, um, how did you clear security? <laughs> um, I don't know. They just let me in. They let you in. Okay. All right. Just want to check. They right. invited I wanted to ask, me in. <laughs> I wanted to ask because I saw a smirk come across the host's face as you said um, you you believed that the TC was an outdated model and not being used anymore. Are you was, taking shots at the host's age? You no, know she thought it was defunct when she <laughs> arrived. <laughs> oh, man, I, I, don't, I don't take shots at my peers. Uh, he's my peer, so I, I think he's quite young. <laughs> okay, okay, perfect. Um, how did you originally hear about Our Common Ground, which was then Daytop, as you mentioned, and when were you first hired, and for what role was that? Okay, um, 
Boy, you are dating me, but that's okay. Uh, back in 1997, the fall of 1997, I moved to California from Texas. Uh, my husband had a job out here, so we moved uh, to California. And I was just looking for a job uh, in probably October, November of 1997 and was called into at that time, Daytop, for an interview as a consultant uh, in the adolescent program, and I was a, they were hiring a consultant to develop a girls program that would address uh, trauma in addition to the treatment of substance abuse in the adolescent um, TC. So I was hired on in January. I started in January of 1998 as a consultant, and I worked, I think, somewhere between like 10 and 12 hours a week uh, developing a program specifically for girls and specifically to address the treatment of trauma. Okay. And was that, in looking to address the treatment of trauma, was that kind of some of the first steps towards integrating mental health into treatment there, which was at Daytop at the time, or were they already doing similar things to that, but not something as specific as trauma for young ladies? Um, I think it was, they had done, they had integrated some mental health in that they had mental uh, health counselors. They had master's degree level counselors working in the adolescent facility, although they weren't uh, doing mental health treatment specifically, I'm sure they were just doing it as a natural part of the TC things that they were doing. So I think it really was kind of the beginnings of a specific mental health component as a part of the TC, although I've always seen um, Daytop's adolescent program when I came into it um, kind of ahead of the curve in providing mental health treatment in conjunction with treatment for substance abuse. Okay, okay, great. Um, so your current role at Our Common Ground, you're the director of the program. Uh, we're wondering, what is the path that you went on to become from consultant and creating this mental health component for young ladies uh, dealing with trauma specifically? Um, and so I started in 1998 as a consultant at the adolescent um, facility for the girls, and uh, essentially developed groups that would be provided to a subset of girls who had um, significant levels of trauma in their life. And I did that from January to July. Um, and I think a couple of things happened for for me and for um, Daytop slash OCG. The model fit really well with uh, sort of my way of viewing the world and being in the world. And so I embraced the therapeutic community um, you know, with open arms and learned as much as I could about the TC, even though my role was primarily providing the mental health services and supervising um, others who were providing the mental health services, I became very interested and invested um, in the therapeutic, therapeutic community. So I kind of embraced it. And somewhere in July, they offered uh, me to come on board full-time as a second program psychologist. They had... Uh, currently had a program psychologist, and they invited me to join the team as a um, program psychologist. And so I did that from 1998 until the fall of 2001, and then there was a um, reorganization at Daytop, and at that point I uh, was appointed the clinical director to oversee the mental health 
services, all of the mental health services at um, DATOP slash OCG, uh, including uh, the adult facility. Okay, great. And that's, I just wanted, that's where I'm at. Go ahead. <laughs> Lene, I just, this is Orville again. I just wanted to ask you, when you had stated that the TC kind of jived with your the way you looked at treatment and um, I guess if you were to design a treatment program, it would be similar to what the ATOP OCG TC looked like. Are, are you saying for our audience that you were a supporter of flogging and whipping and all of that stuff that we used to do back then to get people to grab and take hold of recovery back then? Um, well, uh, I'll speak to that in that I remember the first encounter group I ever attended. Um, not a word did I say, and I was short of breath when I left that room because um, <laughs> I was shocked by what happened. Um, but more than anything, I think I was impressed by how the kids managed it. You know, Again, these were the adolescents. Uh, so all this yelling and screaming and spitting and kicking and, you know, all of this stuff happens. And then at the end, you know, these adolescent boys are coming across the room and giving each other hugs and, you know, holding each other and, and putting their arms around each other. So um, to that part, I was a little bit like, wow, and whoa. Uh, but mm-hmm. the rest of it, the accountability, the structure, um, really – set well with me, you know, really uh, fit with how I view the world and and how I think people should be in the world. I often, um, early in my career, would tell people, I think everybody needs to go to OCG or, you know, Daytop for for a couple of weeks, everybody. Oh, yeah, no, no. That's, uh, I think a lot of us uh, can recall our first encounter group experience, whether staff, client, whoever, uh, it's definitely an interesting uh, kind of dynamic that takes place in that group. Um, so that, that's funny that you recall the first first encounter group oh of Breathless for, for a number of reasons. Well, encounter group <laughs> is usually the, the group that, in, that leaves the most lasting impression. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I, always, I always believed they took me into an account. That was my first, uh, it was my interview. It wasn't even, I wasn't even hired yet, but I always believed they took me into that encounter group to, and, and they were thinking, okay, if she can, manage this she'll be all right here yeah yeah that's a good test that's a very good test did you have um any experience in residential settings prior to getting hired uh, by daytop um i did i had uh some experience at a county mental hospital uh in houston texas um okay where these were severely mentally ill uh individuals with severe mental illnesses um, so very different, uh, very low functioning population, but that much was much higher level of care. Yes. Okay. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, what did the recovery model for drug addiction look like in residential settings prior to the integration of the mental health component And talking, I guess, not in a hospital setting as you just described, but in a setting where substance abuse was the main focus. Yeah, more the residential or the recovery programs. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I think and I think there was a little bit of an evolution over time of how those programs were. Initially, you know, they used to do alcohol treatment and then drug treatment and those were kind of separate for a while and then those two were integrated. And early on, most of those programs really focused on kind of uh changing behavior and they tended to view people with substance abuse problems as, you know, addicts or people with character defects or, you know, that that they were sort of making choices about this and that we just had to get them on the right path and get them to straighten out their behavior. And it's, so it was pretty hard-hitting uh, and confrontational okay. before more of the mental health kind of aspect came in. Okay. Okay, great. And uh, if you can give maybe like a vague kind of time frame, because I know an exact year might be hard to identify with this question, but around what time did the integration of mental health uh, or that component in residential recovery facilities take place? Do you, do you recall exactly when that was, when we started to see more of that? You know, I think it was sometime in the, the mid-'80s when they really started to to look at substance abuse and alcoholism differently. There had been debate, you know, for many, many years about, you know, is this a disease like a, a physical disease or, a, you know, a, a, ment- a health issue? Or is this sure. a psychological, you know, purely psychological? Is this characterological? What might this be? But I really think it was in the mid-1980s when the, you saw um, people who were working in substance abuse treatment um, really take on a new perspective of, you know, this this is probably a disease. This is probably like a mental health illness or a physical illness, something like that. Genetics are involved here. And we need to start looking at how we're treating people with this illness differently. And they also began to consider special populations more, like, you know, we can't treat women the same way we provide treatment for men. We need uh, specific treatments for adolescents. We need specific treatments for people who've been traumatized. So they began to take in, at that point, into consideration um, some of the underlying things associated with substance abuse and alcoholism. Instead of just kind of lumping them into a hole, huh? Yeah, and and just saying we just need to change behavior, we need to change their attitudes, you know, we need to get them to, you know, set up straight and walk straight and behave better. Um, It's more complicated than that. So, Lene, this is uh, Orville again. And and by the way, it's it's Dr. Hymas, everybody else out there, you can call her. (laughs) She's one of ours. Um, you, You are... I'm sure you're aware that at least in the daytop world um, at the time that you arrived, uh, especially on the eastern seaboard, uh, there was a significant struggle going on to integrate mental health into the therapeutic community. Um, In California, there wasn't so much a struggle primarily because of the regulatory regulatory climate that the adolescent program operated under, so you, you needed more high level uh, of staffing, mm-hmm. um, more um, educated staff person. And so, as you noted, the, the staff who were providing treatment within the TC model kind of through osmosis were starting to address some of the mental health issues. But if we just take New York's perspective for a second back then, where they were fighting a tooth and nail uh, to come in. And when you said that, well, 
from your perspective, you were an outsider coming in, and as you looked at it, we appear to be really ahead of the curve in terms of providing mental health. What was it that we were doing that others weren't? Um, I think it was a couple of things. I think it was the staff that you were hiring, because a lot of the caseload counselors, at least in the um, adolescent program, had master's degrees. They were um, MFT interns. Uh, they were trainees, but they did have training and education uh, beyond uh, what I think the traditional paraprofessional might have. Mm-hmm. And then I think you were also offering um, specialized groups in that were not necessarily your traditional TC groups. Right. Um, so we were addressing some of the, you know, when I came on board, we did, we introduced boundaries group. We introduced right. what we called voice group, which was um, specifically uh, designed to address trauma. Um, we introduced um, what we called, the girls called it cognitive thinking group, but it was really cognitive therapy group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those were some of the innovative things that the adolescent program was doing early on. Uh, one, more, one more question with the Mm-hmm. We'll give you that because she, she mentioned voice, the voice program. That's right. And I, I don't know about Lene, but I've had, I, I've had, yeah, I've had a beef about the voice <laughs> program for a long time. So we might as well air it out right now. Lene, as you know, as you are well aware, we applied for a federal grant <clears throat> for the voice program to expand it, expand that whole thing that you designed, mm-hmm. your baby. And uh, we scored pretty high. We're we were in the top top group. We didn't get the grant. But um, for those of you who don't know, VOICES stand for Victims Overcoming Issues to Expression. And uh, wouldn't you know, so this is about, what, 99, 2000 when we applied for that grant. A couple of years later, we were looking on a federal website, and they stole, they stole the name of our program. Oh, the voice I do program. remember by somebody else. Huh? Not only did they not give us the grant, they stole the name. Oh my goodness! Remember that? Yeah, I do remember. I remember it well. Um, I've always, I've, I've kind of let go of it though, Orville. But I, I always appreciate that you still bring that up and you're still concerned about it. So, uh. Lene has since moved on, but. <laughs> oh wow! Should have yeah. trademarked it. We should have. We should have. Absolutely. They say, oh well, we're not going to give them money, but that's a great acronym. Yeah, that's a that's a great name. Unbelievable. Yes. So you I, know, I wanted I did, to ask. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I did experience, I think, some of the um, pushback about integrating mental health into to the TC when I um, began spending more time at the OCG adult facility. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember very clearly my first visit there, which was in my early years uh, in this organization, um, and it, there was a lot of like, hmm, who is she and hmm, what's she doing here? And mm-hmm. and we didn't integrate mental health a whole lot at that point, but then a few years later when we started bringing more mental health providers into the adult facility, um, I definitely experienced the, the, the pushback from the TC staff and kind of the doubting of the TC staff about how can these people, um, you know, who have education but perhaps not life experience, really uh, provide anything that we can't provide. And and we had to, you know, we had a few years of struggling and fighting and working that out to where we could 
recognize, I think both sides even, that um, the TC folks, the traditional TC folks had a lot to teach us and that we also had a lot to teach them. Yep. And that's actually an excellent segue into my next question, uh, which I was going to ask, as with anything new, when anything new is being integrated into something that has been a certain way for a long period of time, there are issues and challenges and struggles. And so I wanted to ask you, and maybe you could expound on that a little bit, what you were just talking about, of what some of the initial struggles were with integrating this mental health component, which essentially was creating a new approach to treatment. Yeah, I think um, there are a couple of key things, and one of them is actually changing um, kind of the way we view uh, substance abuse or people with substance abuse problems. Uh, and I think sometimes the older TC staff really believe that um, they just need to be confronted. They, they're, they're manipulators, they're sneaky, they're, they're rascals, you know, all of these things, and we just need to be on top of them, we need to confront them, we need to not trust them, and, and so on and so forth, and kind of changing that mindset in that um, people with substance abuse problems have all sorts of different personalities and ways of approaching the world, and, and they have those ways because that's how they survived in the world. We need to show them a new way of surviving. Uh, nobody's ever trusted them before. Nobody's ever valued them before. They've never been successful at anything, you know, and, and so we had to kind of change the entire mindset and approach them in a very different fashion. So that, you know, mental health, people who are trained in mental health do that easily. People who are trained or come from the TC world, that's a big shift for them. So that was a, a big challenge. And then okay. I think the next challenge was just to recognize um that there's so much value, and this is what I loved about Daytop and, and, and do love about Daytop and OCG, although you know things have changed some, is that I learned so much from the TC staff, from their experience, from their knowledge, from their wisdom. You know, just they knew a lot more than I did about many things. And once we could sort of pair those two things together, it's like we became a team that couldn't not succeed. And so I think that was the main thing is just changing the model of how we view people with substance abuse and then getting those two teams to integrate. And we still, I think, even today sometimes have trouble uh, with that integration. You know, we'll kind of miss, the teams will kind of miss each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that that's said very well. And getting, obviously, getting staff on the same page regardless of background is paramount to the client success because everybody should be delivering the same message. So um, that's important as well. Yeah, and I I think OCG... Go ahead. um, I think OCG took it one step further, too. Not only did we want to shift that mindset, we wanted to come from a positive, um, what, what we call a positive psych approach, where we wanted, instead of sort of mistrusting and punishing everyone, we wanted to... Uh, find their strengths and their abilities and their their skills and recognize those people and kind of build them up, um, you know, give them trust until they gave us a reason not to trust them. So we almost, you know, OCG kind of almost went to the other end of the spectrum, um, which I personally really resonate with that approach. But I know when you come from the early TC world, it's hard to make that shift. 
Right. And let me let me interrupt before the host gets his point in here, but I was going to say so you <laughs> we wanted the clients to be able to understand something other than that they were lazy and non-caring. Is that what I hear you saying? Oh, absolutely. That's that's a great way of saying it. She want she wanted us to holster holster the whip. <laughs> but he, when we interviewed um Dr. Deitch for our first show on the Daytop special he, one of the things he talked about was exactly what you're saying. And this is the interesting thing about the TC that I find, is that it went in, from his perspective, it was supposed to be exactly how you're describing it. Not that the rascalism of the addict would not be addressed and pointed out and dealt with, but that there was no necessary necessity or reason for you to beat them down because they were already mm-hmm. beaten down when they walked through the door. And he said that we kind of went off course, went away from that a little bit. And um, that was one of the things that he wished had not occurred. Yeah. And I think organically for us, I mean, we didn't know that until we talked to him, but we realized that um or as I, you've heard me say, I certainly wasn't trained that way. And so whenever someone would come, and as you say, you know, the, the, the old school or the old traditional TC, I would always say, well, the traditional TC was not about humiliating people. It wasn't about beating them down. And so anyone who thought that or was taught that, unfortunately, was taught incorrectly because that's not what the TC was about. The TC was about helping, pulling people in being a big brother, being a big sister, showing them the correct way to do things, and then holding people accountable, but not humiliating and beating people down. Yep. So um, when you integrate a substance abuse and mental health, when you integrate them together, we talked about the difficulties of making sure that you have a staff team that's on the same page those who may be more well-versed in substance abuse, those who may be well-versed in mental health. What about the client? We know that even today there's still a stigma attached to, quote-unquote, having a mental health issue or disorder. How do we go about fighting through that and getting the clients to participate in the process of you know, getting them assessed and identified so that we can help them? Right, and, and that's a that's a great question, and I think part of it is a, a societal issue um, because there is stigma associated with having a substance abuse diagnosis, and then there's stigma associated with having a mental health diagnosis, and then you have someone who has both issues going on. You know, boy, that's that's like a double whammy, and so how do we make it a, a safe and comfortable place for them to say, look, I do have depression. Look, I do have anxiety. You know, look, this bad thing did happen to me. Um, and I think it's just through education and and support. You know, we teach people about these things. Um, some of these things are genetic. We know that. Um, some of these things are genetic, and then they get expressed because of some trauma or some experience in our life. Um, those events are beyond you know, the individual's control, um, but now how they manage those things that have happened to them or, or the experiences that they're currently having are within their control, and, and and we believe that they can have a good life, you know, so we have to teach them 
why these things happen, and no, that's not your responsibility, but it really is your responsibility for how how you take care of yourself going forward, and you have to reach out for help. And, and I think Daytop uh, OCG has, is really good at helping clients recognize that they can't do this alone, you know. And, and the reality, the way I see the world is, uh, even if you don't have a substance abuse uh, diagnosis, even if you don't have a mental health diagnosis, it's really hard just to be in the world alone. You know, you don't want to live your life ask, alone. In uh, in today's landscape, almost every program you find is a dual diagnosis program. Mm-hmm. And so, with this new approach to drug addiction, drug addiction having such a heavy and Uh-oh. The state, what do you see happening to the future of the paraprofessional? You know, I think, um, and you know, all the regulations and the things are, uh, the requirements that are being put in place regarding uh, residential treatment facilities, substance abuse programs, I think what's going to happen is the paraprofessional is going to be required to have more education and training, which I think is a positive thing and a beneficial thing both for the paraprofessional and for the uh, programs. Um, And and I'm a huge believer in the combination of uh, mental health staff, paraprofessionals working together and again, through my experience and my time at Daytop uh, slash OCG, I have, you know, learned just as much from the paraprofessionals, um, the Orvilles, uh, the Larry Thomases of the world who've been in the TC for years and years and years and have all this great wisdom, um, you know, as I learned from my textbooks most certainly. Um, and so I'm a, I'm a big proponent of having the paraprofessional work in conjunction with the mental health professional, and and I, and I think from my perspective, the more education, the more training they can get, the better. Um, but that they bring something valuable not just to the treatment team; they bring something very valuable to the clients also. Sure. Okay. So, and maybe to to summarize your point a little bit there, we're looking at getting the paraprofessional more education, more experience, i.e., transitioning the paraprofessional just to another professional. Taking the taking the para out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A higher level of education uh, and more training. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Other, well, yeah. Otherwise, I think just because of the regulations, they're not going to be allowed to continue doing the work that they're doing. Right. Exactly. No, you're entirely correct. And the reason I ask is because, as you know, um, in residential facilities and especially in TCs or therapeutic communities. Um, the role of the paraprofessional has always been a big role. You would get mm-hmm. uh, graduates of the program coming back to work and things of that nature, um, and so that's always been a big part of the TC's makeup, if you will. Um, but, you know, as you pointed out and as it looks like in today's landscape, anybody having direct contact with clients is going to be required to have, you know, like you said, more education, more training in things of that nature, and so that the role of at least what the paraprofessional used to look like in terms of just experience, having gone maybe through the therapeutic community or being in recovery themselves, um, not going to work out so much anymore unless they further their education and their training. Right, right. And I think they're invaluable. I just really 
value the contribution they can make, but I think just given you know the climate, that's what's going to have to happen. Also, I think unlike uh, back in the day, using Daytop as an example again, we had a full-fledged state-recognized uh, training, you know, training program, um, and that really just does not exist anymore within programs. And so, the the, the only alternative, because it's now being required as funding requirements change, regulatory climate is changing, um, and so they are requiring staff to be certified and, 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 and to be trained. Um, for me, even someone becoming certified is, is not good enough. To me, the, the proof is in the training. Yeah. As you well know, you can have someone that, you know, they've got their certification. doesn't mean that they're effective. Right. So... Uh, do you have I agree. No, that was the that was actually the last question I had, but I know you said you wanted to add something yeah. before I wrap it up. Yeah, I actually want it's and this is for both uh you and May and Chris because um I know both of you guys are in cahoots with the being a rabid San Francisco Giant fans. Defending champs. Uh matter of fact, I don't even know why both of your cars aren't <laughs> painted orange and black. <laughs> um but uh, I've been pontificating on this show since we started in November, and just wanted to know if you would concur with my assessment that uh, the Giants are going to finish in last place this year. Oh, here we go. I do not concur. And, in fact, I forgot to stay, say when I came on that I was happy to be on, on with someone who is also a avid Giants fan. That's exactly right. And, Dr. Jaimez, we don't need to allow the host to verbally abuse our team like this. This is completely uncalled for. Unprofessional. <laughs> I, I I agree, and all I can say is go Giants. That's exact. That and that's a perfect way to end it. Let's, let's make sure we edit that out <laughs> of the podcast. That, that's exactly <laughs> right. So I just wanted to um, thank you, Lene, for coming on and, and being so open with us and taking the time out of your day today to be a guest on our show. Um, it was great chatting with you. Obviously, you have a plethora of knowledge and experience in this field, and so to tap into some of that was really awesome. So thank you so much for joining us. We would love to have you back at some point. So whenever you'd like to be back or if you just want to call in, you're always welcome. And uh, thanks again for your time. Oh, you're very welcome, and thanks for having me. And go OCG Radio. All right. See you guys later. Thank you. Okay, go Yankees. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, absolutely perfect. That was an awesome interview. So you want to take a quick uh, music commercial break, and yep. on the other side we'll get to our uh, recovery sport time? Sure. All right, we do see some of you guys on hold. We apologize we haven't even been able to get to the screening line because of the interview, but we will get to your calls on the other side.
on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. Welcome back to Roach on Recovery. Just finished a nice interview with Dr. Lene Jaimez on substance abuse and mental health and the integration of them both into 
a single treatment environment. And based on what she said, what we already know, it's still a work in progress. That's it. To get the two to work together. And you know where you're still seeing the struggle, by the way, and I forgot to bring this to her. I'm sure she's well aware of it. That counties, cities, and or state departments where they used to have an alcohol and drug department and the Department of Mental Health, they're now merging them together okay. into, some are calling them behavioral health departments, et cetera. And it's really two different cultures that they're merging together. Okay. And so, but they're merging. And so, I mean, but, but, I mean, they're, they're merging now. We've merged a long time ago. So right, 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 right. They're, they're a little behind, they're, behind, they're behind, the, behind curve. the curve on that one. Um, six four six five six four ninety nine zero nine is the number recovery support time, and I know we got uh, Melissa on the line from Pacifica, who's been holding a while. Melissa, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, so my question is, like, I I understand um uh, the benefits of being in a therapeutic community. Um. And you know how um, everyone's supposed to help them, you know, help each other, help themselves, and things like that through um, difficult times, and um, you know, having cravings and triggers, and just kind of the whole gamut of you know what treatment is. Um, but like kind of um, how Dr. Jimenez was saying that with the integration of mental health and everything, and a lot of dual diagnosis programs um, now popping up. So how what would you what advice would you give to somebody who's in treatment um in a therapeutic community community but having to deal with um other residents who have mental health issues? First of all, that's a very good question. An excellent question. Um it is it is hard to be in a treatment environment that's uh you know they used to use the term dual diagnosis that's still popular or a term co occurring is another term. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, be a client in a program and also have in the program people who are struggling with mental health issues, some that are subtle and some that are very overt. Mhm. And we got to have compassion if it's overt and it's showing itself. And what we hope is that, that the person is being helped in a manner where, i.e., if they need medication to assist them with the mental health issue, that that's either happening or going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because the last thing that we want is to, uh, and, and, and I know I'm of the mindset that, as long as a person is not doesn't have an exclusionary criteria, that means like there's like seven things that you can't have that we're not able to treat. But so as long as they don't fall into that, we give everyone an opportunity until they show something different. Because a lot of times you can't tell walking in the door. But sometimes once they're there, then things show up. Mm-hmm. So when things show up is whether or not can we actually treat this, can we assist them or not. And that may take a week or two or even three to determine. And so what we our hope is that the other clients that are present in the treatment setting can manage that until a determination is made or 
if it's medication that's missing that needs to happen so that that happens, but that there's patience, there's compassion um, while that's, you know, while they're they're experiencing this this client who might be different from them. You understand what okay. I'm saying? Or did I just talk no, I mean, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I understand what you're saying. In that. <laughs> I mean, I know it's kind of a, I guess it is kind of a difficult question to answer. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I understand definitely having compassion, sympathy, empathy for others and the, and their personal struggles. Um, yeah, I mean, I do. But I, but I hear what you're that, saying. Yeah. There comes a point where it becomes counterproductive to the larger family group. Yes. And then that's what we don't want. So we don't want it to get to a point where it's so counterproductive that the larger family can't function. So I hope that that's never the case or that doesn't become the case. Um, but if that ever is the case, I hope that those in the treatment setting can deal with that and that it won't cause them to, it won't upset them so much that they say, oh, well, I can't be here or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, no, thank you. I, I appreciate your input on that. That was a tough question. Good, good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I aim to please then. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, go Giants. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. That is right. Well said. Well said. Great call, great ending. Okay, you need to you need to be on the ball with that flush button <laughs> when people start saying stuff like that. Oh no. No, in fact <laughs> round of applause for the Giants fans. All right, let's go to Question, written question. Why do addicts substitute from Eric? Why do addicts substitute one addiction for another? I don't know if that's always the case. I mean, it, it can happen. It can happen. It, it has. It does it's happen. It's not a given. It's, but yeah, but it's not a given. I agree. We had a question similar, I, I believe. Last week uh, about food. Yeah. It's, would someone go from switch from drugs, drugs to, to, to food? Food, and we mentioned gambling and yeah, there there are a plethora of, but yeah, I don't think it's a given. Yeah. So he's asking why. In the instances that it does happen, maybe he's asking why is that the case? Well, the answer would be that the person hasn't dealt with the underlying. What, what I mean, if if they're addicted to something in the negative sense, and and of course we talked about the word only having a negative sense to it. Right. So if they have licked the drug addiction but are now gambling in Vegas and Reno and Atlantic City for my East Coast family. Uh et cetera. I don't know if any I don't know if any other places opened up on the Eastern Seaboard or the Atlantic City. Atlantic so, so City. Someone has to let me know because I don't know. I haven't been there in a while. Um <laughs> so so if they go from drugs, stop using drugs and start gambling the question becomes, okay, again, what is it that you're not dealing with while you're using this as your out, your medication, your mechanism of coping? Agreed. The question doesn't change. Right. Only the symptom has changed. Right, exactly. And and I think that what you just said right there touches on the bigger point is that the problem is not the drug use, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The problem is the reason behind why you're using the drugs in the first place and that could be using anything. 
but the issue is the underlying the cause rather than what you see on the surface. Which brings up something interesting I wanted to talk about. People used to wonder when they would visit the TC programs, New York, California, Texas, Pennsylvania, why is it more often than not you rarely heard drugs being talked about? Now you do because we do drug education. Oh, okay. You know, pharmacology of drugs and so on and so forth. Sure. How it affects the body. We do that now. But back in the day, you rarely heard drugs as you know as a staff seminar or something. You rarely heard drugs being talked about. And the reason was is because we knew that drugs had nothing to do with your problem. Right, right, right. It was just right. a manifestation of what your problem was. Sure. You could have chosen anything, as we just said. You could, you could be gambling. You could be a sex addict. You could be a clothing, a shopping addict or whatever the case may right. be. You just happen to be very unlucky. And <laughs> shows, <laughs> yeah, the the bad, the the drugs. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, too. Um, and you did rarely hear it spoken about, mm-hmm. actually. It's actually funny. I remember a time long ago when it was still rarely spoken about where if you had a group about drug education, oh, man, the room lit up. Half the room wants to drop slips on the staff member for triggering them. Mm-hmm. The other half uh, is just so they can't wait to raise their hand so they can war story a little bit mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. glorify whatever it was they did. But you're right. It, it was a rare occurrence. As a matter of fact, our, one of the first persons to actually ask the question was uh, a visitor from the county and, and, and who asked about a, he asked a specific question about uh the type of groups that we had, and, and none of them mentioned anything to do with drugs. And he said, well, how come you don't have any? This is a drug treatment program, right? I said, yes. He said, so you don't spend any time talking about drugs. And again, this was before we started doing drug education. And we said, no. We, we, we deal with and we have groups and we talk about the issues that have contributed to using drugs, but drugs are just a symptom. So we don't spend time talking about the symptom unless we want to teach them about drugs, which we do now. Now we teach people about how it affects the body and so on and so forth so that they're fully rounded so that, uh, as I've said to every client I've, I've come into contact with in New York, California, wherever, I always say once you go into treatment, you will never enjoy getting high again. Yeah, that's because, been around the TC for a while. Because once you learn the reasons why you get high, you just won't enjoy it. Because you'll be sitting there smoking your joint and analyzing yourself at the same time. <laughs> Whereas before, you were blissfully ignorant. <laughs> and you can just enjoy the joint and not know anything. That's right. Ignorance was bliss. Not anymore. Nope. Now you'll be smoking, and in between each puff, you'll be like, what is it that I'm escaping? <laughs> that's that's oh. right. <laughs> You can you can no longer it just sit is there. My goal to make sure you <laughs> never enjoy, enjoy the high again. All right, that's pretty good. Who do we got? Let's go to Eric from Salinas. Welcome, Hi, Eric. How's it going? Good. Hey, uh, I had a question for you. So uh, I'm finally sober now, right? And uh, a lot of. Uh, feelings and emotions and all this other stuff I never paid attention to before are popping up, you know? Yeah. And uh, I realize that uh, now being sober, I'm somewhat of an angry person, you know? 
and sometimes I'm not exactly uh, clear on why that is. But um, I just wanted to ask you, uh, what is the what do you think is the best way in dealing with that within myself, you know? My answer is going to be very raw, so I apologize if you get offended. What's that? You ready? Yeah. You ready? Yes. Okay. First off, congratulations on experiencing and, and feeling what it feels like to be sober. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Second, secondly, secondly, when you do get some clean time under your belt, all of those feelings that you have been trying to escape, hide from, run from, stuff, are going to just come to the surface like a tsunami. Yeah. The one you That's... mentioned was the one you feeling that you mentioned though was anger. Yes, sir. And my advice to you, my suggestion to you, my recommendation to you regarding that particular feeling is to mm. take it and stuff it in your back pocket. Because anger is a secondary feeling. Right. The question is, what is it that's going on in front of that? Mm. What does it stem from? Yes, let's get to that. Let's dig into that. Okay. Because then, and once you do that, you'll then have an understanding of why I, you know, what I'm angry about, why I feel the way I feel. Right. Right. Um, I, I've done some, cure, some cure things. the anger alone, by the way, is very easy, very simple. To cure the anger yeah. alone. But we know it's yeah. not about the anger. It's about what's coming, what's happening before that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to change it. Go ahead. No, no, it's okay, it's okay. Um, I've done a lot of thinking on this, you know, because it's, you know, it's been a problem in the past, but stop, I never identified right it. Stop right there. Stop right there. See, mm. the producer, we need to get a clip. I don't, I don't know the name of the group, but they stop right there. Whatever the name of that rock group is, that's what we need to get for him. Okay. He would have played that clip. Stop right there. You just said I did a lot of thinking, right? Yeah. The answer does not lie upstairs. Yeah. Where does it lie? It lies downstairs. It doesn't lie in your brain. It lies in your gut. Mm-hmm. All right. So instead of thinking, not that thinking is not going to be a part of this process, but right. the answer to what you're looking for lies in your gut, and you got to dig okay. deep to get it out. Okay. What's driving this anger that's now coming to the surface? Mm-hmm. What what is it? Be the questions you're asking yourself, mm-hmm. and the answer lies deep with. I don't know how deep, or if it's shallow. I don't know. I'm just saying the answer lies within. It's not upstairs in your brain. Right. Okay. Your brain will help you articulate it, verbalize it, speak it. But in terms of reaching it, you gotta dig down, you know, get down there, and really, you know, get into those feelings. Right. I mean, how do I do that? Do I pay t- pay attention to how my body is feeling when I get mad, or I mean, how, how do I how do I go into my gut and pull that stuff out? All right, let me. I'm going to answer it, even though we know this is against the rules. It's, we don't like answering a question with a question, but I got to answer a question with a question. It's all right. Okay. 
Are you the type of person that responds more to your intellect or to how you feel? More to how I feel. Okay. And you have to tap into your gut, which is where your feelings emanate from. Mm -hmm. That center portion of your body where the vibes, that sixth or seventh sense, so to speak. Okay. And you have to ask yourself, what is it that I am feeling before I get angry? Right. Okay. Something happens. It's a split second. You just shut it down and you go, boom, right to the anger. That's what you focus on. Yes. Yes. So you got to slow it down, slow motion, okay? Yeah. And and, and even, re- like, replay, I should say, in slow motion. Okay, what was it that got me and then got me right to that anger? What happened? Right. What was the exchange? Right. What did it kick up? You know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You got to slow it down or replay it back. Mm-hmm. We got to pinpoint it so that we can identify each time that it happens. And then that's the key. Once you are able to slow it down, identify it to be aware, to be alive, then right. you can control how you act. Even if right. you end up being angry, you could still control how you behave. Yeah. And that's the, ul- and then, that's the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I do that, do I think about, okay, there's several ra- ways to react to this situation. You know what I mean? And uh, so what are the best ways to react to it? Is that what you're talking about, kind of? Well, here, here's an example. Let's say you slow it down or you replay it and you realize, you know what? My, I got my feelings hurt. That's why I got angry. Okay. Okay. So it's about talking about the hurt. You know, get, you know, my feelings being hurt. Right. You, you know, focusing on that rather than the anger. Mm-hmm. The anger is easy. That's, that's, the most, that's the easiest feeling to deal with. Yes. I, dealing I agree. with the cause, the hurt. Mm-hmm. The other things that might be that might be you know generating the anger that's the that's the hard one, yeah, yeah, and so the only way you can identify it is by slowing it down or replaying it and saying, "Okay, what happened here right, okay, okay, all right, okay, okay, I hope well, I answered your question no yeah you gave around. you gave me a okay you gave me a valid answer, okay. Good stuff. So, look, I, I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Bye-bye. There's that anger again. There's <laughs> there's that anger rearing its ugly head again. There's no cure. It's down at the wharf. <laughs> Fisherman's Wharf. Yeah. Fisherman's Wharf is similar to, let's see, what is it similar to in Manhattan? Coney Island. No, that's in Brooklyn, by the way. Okay. Uh, <laughs> where, where they used to have, I don't know if they still have it, where they used to have the Intrepid, the ship. So it's similar to that area down there in Manhattan. Okay. That's where Fisherman's Wharf is in San Francisco. It's like. So they actually, so they have a little deal like that out in New York where you where, go walk around and get a little fish and chips or a little clam no, chowder or something. No, you can walk around and get ripped off if you're a tourist. But if, you know, okay, if you, all right. If you, if you if you if you if you're from New York and you're not from out of town and you know your way around, that's by the way from uh Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, by the way, that line. Okay. All right. Um then you know, you don't get taken advantage of. Well same kind of deal in, in SF. If you're if you're from the area, Fisherman's the NFL shop in Fisherman's Wharf is Off not where you is not where you're gonna buy your jersey. 
<laughs> off limits. Exactly. But we, when we did our show, um, what's the feeling? Thank you, Felix Arroyo. Uh, we talked about anger, and you know, you can. You know, when I say you can cure the anger in thirty seconds, I'm I'm being, you know, sarcastic when I say that. But the truth behind it is, is that we're trying to get people to get off of focusing on the anger. That's easy. Well, let's focus on the feelings that are generating the anger. That's right. what's hard to talk about. Right. Okay. All right. So let's take a written one. Uh, I'm going to, the way the person wrote it, I can't read it the way they wrote it, so I'm going to help them with their writing. So when there is a relapse, does it mean that I had a negative reservation? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Because sometimes circumstances, events, might trigger a relapse. And a person didn't have a negative reservation to use or to engage in a certain thing that might end up triggering a relapse. But sometimes people who might be young in their recovery or not yet strong in their recovery might endure a very traumatic experience, a loss, um, a death in the family, something of that nature um, that's very difficult to deal with, and it may send them into a, a, a relapse. And so that would be an example of where there wasn't a negative reservation, but something occurred in their life that they, they were found it difficult to deal with, and they <clears throat> excuse me, kind of went back to an instinctive place of instead of facing the feelings, dealing with them, coping with them, went to medicate as a means of coping. So yes, sometimes it is a negative reservation, and no, sometimes it isn't. Not sure if there's any other way to answer that. It's pretty well said. Okay, let's go to Rojas from Redwood City. Welcome, Rojas. Uh, hello. Uh, uh, thank you for the uh, for the time. I was just I, I had a real quick question and something that's kind of been bothering me. And it's um, how can I keep my sobriety alive besides AA and NA and NA meetings? It's possible. In terms, so when you say how, is the how the question, or you're wondering, is it possible to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, possible. And and if and how can I keep it alive? Okay, so yeah, it is possible because not everybody goes to NA and AA as a post-treatment uh, recovery. Not everybody does it. So it is possible. Many people do that. Um, the how is in finding something that's going to be supportive for you. You know, because any, any person that's supporting you and, and advising you is going to recommend that you have support in your recovery process. And so if a person says, well, you know, I'm really not feeling NA or AA or the 12-step type of, of support groups, we would say, well, try and find something else that can offer you positive support, positive rec recreation, positive so socialization with people that are about what you're about. Some people, it's their church. Some people, you know, it's sports league. Some people, you know, who knows? 
So you have, you'll, that's part of what you're going to have to figure out. I can't tell you what it is because I, I don't know you specifically. Um, but you'll have to figure that out if, if it's not going to be one of the traditional things. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I can see that, you know, maybe not NA or AA, but maybe like, you know, a night with the friends, see them and just go out, I guess. Or to church, you know, I kind of like, you know, I have a spiritual side of me that I kind of like think about a lot, you know. So I think that that's that's a good idea. I would agree. Uh, you know, uh, any of those ideas, anytime you can find yourself in a social setting where you're receiving support, where your peers or the people that you're surrounding yourself with are for what you're doing. They've got your back. They want to be supportive. These are all great social settings to find yourself in, um, and they can definitely keep you sober. Like you said, going to church, that's a big one. There's a real sense of community when it comes to an individual and whichever church it is they choose to attend. And these people, you feel a kind of genuine sense that they want what's in your best interest. Now, I mean, do you feel that way when you when you go to your church or the the meetings that you attend? Uh, I I usually, I haven't gone, like, you know what I'm saying, like every day or the days that I'm supposed to go, but that's that's something that I felt that is kind of like making me not be true to my sobriety, you know. It's kind of like hard right now for me keeping it alive and, and wanting to, uh, and, and actually wanting to follow, you know, the AA and NA and 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 because sometimes I feel like like not like just going, you know, what I'm saying dry pretty much without support. And it's something that I, I, I it's kind of like been on my mind pretty much. You know, how can I keep it alive besides AA and NA meetings? You know, just know that I have other options. That that's. I guess that something that I wanted to look at, you know, or find out how to do it, pretty much. Well, Rojas, let me add this in. First and foremost, if you're committed to a clean and sober lifestyle, a positive, constructive lifestyle, if you're committed to that, mm-hmm. then that's the that's the most important thing because you can go to NA and AA groups five times a day, seven days a week. And if you're not committed to your recovery, it doesn't make a difference. It's only a matter of time. You can go to church every single day of the week, and if you're not committed to your recovery, it's only a matter of time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and there are that's... people, and I know and I know them, who don't do any of the above, but they're committed to their recovery, and they're clean and sober. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So... It's you have to figure out what's going to work for you. You're going to get suggestions, advice, recommendations, and you know you weigh them all and you say, "What's going to fit for me, Rojas? What's going to work with what I want to do and how I want to do it?" Because ultimately, me personally, all I care about first and foremost is that you're going to do have a positive and constructive life. That's all I care about. The means in which you choose to have that manifest itself is not important to me. 
long as it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So if you're no, just I mean, living yeah, your that... life... Go ahead. No, I mean, no, I was just going to, you know, say that. That was something that I was, I guess, kind of struggling, deciding, you know, not. You know, it's not that I didn't want to follow or something like that, but it just something beside besides an AA and an A that I could do just so, you know, I guess maybe if I don't want to go to AA or an A would be a good idea. I already had thought about the uh, the church and everything and and get into that more than than I'm doing right now. But, you know, just to pretty much find out how to keep it alive. And, and yeah, I mean, the, the stuff that you're saying right now kind of like, you know, makes me think that I was the... I, I kind of had it right, you know, and it definitely sure helped. Yeah, the commitment is the most important thing. The commitment to your recovery is the most important thing. All right, thank you so much. Okay, okay. I, I really thank thank you for your time and thank you for every word that you say. All right, appreciate. It. Thank you, sir. Bye. Please struggle on a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so you gotta take it back to basics. That's a good call. Yeah. That's a good basics. call. When all else fails. Just let's just worry about your commitment to your sobriety, and then all, everything else will take care of itself. Right. I can't start worrying about whether or not I'm going to be going to AA, NA, CA, FA, and whatnot. And <laughs> right. 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 You're going to be driving yourself crazy. Right. You know yeah. I mean? No. Exactly. Let's make sure we can focus on you just wanting it. Right. No matter how it comes, I right. just want it. Right. Exactly. Um, let's see here. This is a very interesting question. Okay. From Mark, uh, why are why are groups more widely used in treatment programs instead of individual sessions? Easy with your answer. All right. <laughs> Do you want the first crack easy, at this one? <laughs> easy with your answer, because I, I don't want to say anything that um, could be played back in the court of law, uh, implicate us in any way um, as far as our outlook on the current funding models at B. So I'm not going to say That stop. all went out the window with our last show when we slammed <laughs> the effects of the Affordable Care Act <laughs> so, on drug yeah. treatment in the United States of America. Yeah, right, exactly. The group. Model. There's a there's a particular there's a particular name for it, but um, well, the group model has been around since time immortal. Yeah, started with AA. Um, so it's always going to be around, and it's always going to be very effective. And as we evolved and realized the benefits of some one-to-one time to discuss maybe some things that maybe I can't throw out there to the larger group right yet. I need to first throw some feelers out to yeah. know, the counselor behind closed doors. and then See they, if I can trust this yes, process. Yes, and, the, and also the counselor may guide me in terms of how I can throw it out to the larger group. Right, you know what I mean? right. So, uh, but more often than not, your help is... Uh, and I hope people didn't misunderstand me last week when I was talking about, you know, providers and what I believe that they should focus on. But the ultimately, I'm not going to be out there on the boulevard with you. That's a good call. Helping you do your thing. 
You know what I'm saying? If you're lucky, you might have a peer. You might have a peer. And so it it behooves me as your counselor to not only take in what you're saying and to help you navigate it, but also to advise you to, you know, try and help make sure that you share this with others in the treatment setting so that it could, you know, because they're going to be there more for you. You're not going to be calling me up at 11 o'clock to, to have a, a one-to-one. <laughs> that's for sure. That's a, that's you for know, sure. I mean, so, um, the one-to-one has has its place. It's beneficial, depending on, obviously on the program model and the, how it's set up. But in our model, we use the TC model. It has its role and its place, and we utilize it. And it's all geared towards getting that client to uh, take it from there out to the larger group. Absolutely. I believe I once called you, uh, how did you define the time, as a past the hour? After the hour. After the, <laughs> to, and the, after and, the hour. And the key is the hour is never named. So you, you never <laughs> it could know. could be any hour. Exactly. You never know when the hour is. And then all I got instead of hello was this better be good. <laughs> so, yeah, no no calls at 11 o'clock. You're gonna and be, and uh, I never said 11 o'clock was the hour. Right. No, no, you never mentioned that. And it was it was past 11 o'clock anyway. Okay. It, was, it was into a different hour, but. The hour, as it were. You want to, uh, before we get into another question there, you want to take a little music break? Sure. We started recovery, um, the whole recovery segment, a little earlier than we typically do, so we can play a little music for our listeners and then get back to it on the other side? Sure. Perfect.
Okay, welcome back to Roach and Recovery. 646-564-9909 is the number. Okay, we're going to take a write-in question real quick. Uh, this is from Adam, Boston City. When do cravings go away? Never. <laughs> Not true. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Good question, though, because I think it's different for everybody. It is different for everyone, and it's also determined by a person's uh, purpose, level of motivation, desire, you know, why they're in treatment, why they're seeking recovery. All that plays a part into them craving the drugs. Right, right. If you're not ready and you're there for other agendas. You'll crave it 24-7. Right, but if you're... you know, you are done. It is your time. You are ready to change your life, and you know you're. You know that's it. Then you will find that the cravings aren't there because your your mind is just on a different track track and path. I agree with that. But if you got your chair pulled up next to the window and you're watching the, the cars go down the boulevard <laughs> and watching yeah. the dial spin on the clock, yeah, yeah. Uh, the cravings might be there. Yeah, they're there in that very moment. Um, commitment. You'll, you'll hear me say that word over and over again. As your commitment gets to a point where you are committed to a new life, you'll find that the cravings will dissipate. Not that they may not reappear, but the goal is to, uh, especially if you've been a long-time user, it's now, in, if you're a long-time drug user, it is now when, you know, well, if you're a long-time user, you use when you're happy, you use when you're sad, you use when you're, you know, your team wins, when, they team, when your team loses, it doesn't make a difference, right? Right. And if the goal is to now try and change that instinct to something different. So something makes you sad, the instinct is not to pick up and use to medicate that feeling, but to deal with that, cope with that, talk about that, get into that. And that takes time. It does. But you got to have the desire to do that. can't be forced upon you. You can't put you in a headlock. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't get it to drink. Yeah. I never heard that one. That's a good one. Yeah, you never heard that one? I never heard that one. All right, let's go to uh, Reginald. Calling all the way from Oakland. Reginald, welcome. Hello. Hello. Yeah, um, I was wondering, uh, how do you know when you really – ready to just give up, you know. Uh is it like indicators, you know, or is it something that, you know, um you know, I mean, is it, you know, would it be something in the the the, the rooms of AA or NA, I mean, or you know, would it just be something that's, you know, I mean, when would you really know? As I, as I was listening to you talk, I was hoping that you would would let me know whether you meant give up, meaning, you know, I'm done with this recovery nonsense, I'm going back to using, or give up, meaning that I'm ready to give up the using and hit this recovery. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, when would you really know that, you know, you, you've had enough, you know, of, you know, and ready to, you know, just, you know, go in full-fledged into recovery? All right. Listen carefully. It is not something that how can I word this? It is almost like a spiritual thing that you feel within yourself. When you know 
that you are done. And it is not something you have to proclaim to others. It's not something you have to run up and down, run up and, run up and down the hallways and talk to, and say to people. It is something you just know when it hits you. That's why I said it's all, I, the only way to describe it is like it's something spiritual. Because that's the only way I can describe it. I don't know what else to say that it is. But you know it. And right. what happens when, that, when you have that experience is it's almost as if a 100-pound weight is off of your shoulders and your back. Because no more is the worry, the concern about, am I going to use again? Am I going to feel like using again? That's over with. All of the energy is now about what do I need to do to get my life back on the track that it needs to be on. Right. Because I'm not worried about if I'm going to use it. I've already made, I've already, I'm, I'm done with that. I've already made that decision. I've already made that commitment. That weight's gone. 100% of your energy is now focused on your new life. Right. Okay, right. It's like a spiritual thing, man. That's the only way I can describe yeah. it. Okay, all right. I, that, I like that. I like that. Okay. All right? Thank you. You're welcome. I don't have any other words to describe that feeling when you know that you're done and it's just about what do I need to do to get my life back? Uh, you know, and what's funny is I've heard it described by a lot of people as instantaneous, like a particular moment, like not something I'm contemplating this mm -hmm. over days and weeks. And the more I listen in groups and listen to people, my feeling is starting to shift. It's almost like I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. One one minute someone says something and boom. Wow. I, I want to change. I want to make it like a... I've heard people describe it like a light switch being clicked on. And from the moment the light switch is clicked on, just full-fledged going in the direction that they want to go. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of odd, like an epiphany mm -hmm. moment, if you will. Hmm. All right. Um, <laughs> Sergio, another good question. Sergio Romo, closer for the Giants? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> How will meditation help with long-term recovery? See, he, he the way he wrote it, he first, it looks like he made a correction. It looks like it was originally will meditation help okay. with long-term recovery, which is a good question. Sure. And then he added with a little arrow, How? It so, took out the so, will. No, he left the will. So, okay. that, so we can treat it as two questions. Okay. So will meditation help with long-term recovery? You bet it will. Let me tell you something. Are we going, uh, is it four, the four or five distinct but overlapping modules? No, uh, no, no. <laughs> we'll cover that another day. We'll cover that another day. But All right. Everyone has a different meaning for what meditation is. And to me, it's any time when you get a, a mental break whether it's daydreaming or whatever it is. Very nice. Okay. Very nice and moments. I, you know, and from speaking to people in many different treatment settings where you are never left alone, you don't get a moment's peace to think, even daydream, which is healthy, by the way, 
and I'm a pro- proponent of, but it's like fighting a, an uphill battle to get people to understand that, but that's another story. Um, so yes, Sergio, uh, meditation, either in its formal form or informal form, is very beneficial. Informal, i.e., yes, late at night. That's my meditation time. Yeah, whatever, right there. Whatever. But I'm guessing he's asking. Uh, I guess he's asking formal meditation. Yes, if you can get yourself to meditate, that's beneficial. And informal meditation, if you're just daydreaming, thinking about the Giants finishing in last place, that's fine too. Either one will work. And as far as the how, I think the how is connected to the will. It will, you know, how you go about it is. A personal choice because some people actually do true meditation and that's a skill in itself and like I just said you can do informal meditation anytime you can get a moment to yourself to just think without being interrupted that's a moment of meditation or if you're doing something that you enjoy a hobby or something like that you know my wife is into many different crafts and she can be just in a zone and of meditation while she's doing them yeah you know what I mean so Absolutely. Uh, feeling at peace. Yep. Um, <clears throat> all right, we got an old friend on the line. Let's welcome our old friend, Henry, ah. back to the show. Welcome back, Henry. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I, I know you got something good for us and tough for us. We're, we're ready for you. Yeah, well, I like what you had to say about meditation. A lot of times answers don't come to me unless I get my mind quiet. Usually the wrong ones come when I'm in turmoil. But that was a good subject. Um, My question today... Henry, Henry. Yeah? Before you get going, I know when you called last, I believe uh, we had spoken about a surgery that you were going to undergo. I just wanted to ask if that went well or how that all went for you, how you're recovering from that. Well, I am recovering from it now. I <clears throat> I had a total knee replacement, okay? And I remember you saying something about that. Yeah, and it's painful. Yes, it is. And it's hard to sleep at night because not so much the pain. I guess the pain wasn't really that much. It's just trying to find a position to put the body in where it doesn't aggravate the afflicted area. So rest is problematic um pain uh my pain uh, medication regimen has been reduced to pretty much as low as you couldn't get it right now i've gone through the regimen of pain medication um the recovery's going well i can walk without a cane now i can stand it actually is more comfortable to stand uh, the only problems I'm experienced with through the recovery and the rehab process is the swelling. You know, I I, I gotta get I can't be upright all day <clears throat> because the knee swells up, of course, and that creates pain and it doesn't facilitate the healing process. We got even icing it down and so on and so forth. Icing feels good, but I'm doing really well. I am. I'm good. doing really well. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm glad I did it. Uh, the first couple of weeks, I wasn't sure whether I was glad I did it or not. I was probably had a few choice adjectives to describe the way I felt about it. But after the first couple of weeks, it started getting better. <clears throat> All right, Henry. Henry. Yeah. I'm about I'm about ten seconds from telling you to 
suck it up. <laughs> I have. All right, been. What's your question, sir? What's your question? Okay, the question today is, is uh, I've gotten a few jobs over the years, right? And I'm getting ready to hit the job market again. All right, I've got a job, but one of the things that I, I run into problems with is, is I need to go to my meetings and I need to stay connected to my outside support group. And I run into, I seem to run, work myself or paint myself into a corner with my employers almost every time because Okay, the last job that I had that worked a lot of overtime, I told them I needed time for the meetings. I needed time for all this stuff, right? I was forthright with being in recovery. But as I became more valuable to the company as an employee, their need for me outweighed their need for me to go to the meetings. And I don't know how to communicate to an employer or somebody who has never been in recovery or had a substance or alcohol problem, how important these meetings are and how necessary without the meetings, eventually they're not going to have me. And I wind up working long, long hours and, you know, uh, getting disconnected from my support group and going through all the things that that involves uh, with, you know, the the mood swings, the lack of, uh, you know, if I stay grounded and I stay in my meetings and stuff, I don't have a lot of stuff to work on, but it seems the farther I get away from that and the more I work, I wind up um, putting myself in a bad way. And I don't right. know how to set a boundary with the employer that sticks. All right, let me uh, let me interject here for a second. So there's good news there's news and then there's bad news. And I'm not going to go in any particular order. Let me just give you news first. All right. The, the news is is that Henry has to come up with a plan that's going to work for him even though it may not be his optimal plan if he were to write his ideal plan. It may not be his ideal plan, but it is a workable, a serviceable plan. That's the news. Realistic. The good news. Right. Here's the good news. The good news is that you are very, very, very motivated towards staying connected and keeping your recovery support front and center. That's good news. That's great news. Here's the bad news. Your employer does not give a rat's ass. I gathered that. Okay, so <laughs> with that, and I'm not saying all employers. I'm just saying, let's just say, worst case scenario, employers don't give a rat's ass. We expect you to be here at 9 and work till 5, and what you do after that and before that is none of our business, as long as you do what you do while you're here. So let's say that's but, their attitude, Okay. You have to figure out a way to work around that. My problem's never been the nine to five thing. It's no, been no, the nine to twelve no, thing. I know. Right? You know I just use that when as uh, normal example. hours are nine to five, but then they need me and then I have to work these extra hours and I never seem to Henry? catch a break. Henry. Henry. Yeah. I just use Okay, that go as ahead. An I'm just saying, I just use nine to five as an example. But it could be anything. Whatever the hours are, my point is is that you have to. That's the bad. We talked about the good, the great. But right. the news is, is that, okay, 
the reality is I have to come up with a plan that's that's more realistic for me that's going to continue, that's going to work keep me plugged in I may not be as plugged in as I want to be but I'm still plugged in that should be the goal you're striving for uh, absolutely okay absolutely um, it can happen it can happen right uh, you know, uh, the, the hard thing is, is it's usually not until I get a couple years invested with the company that this, these things start happening. You know, so you start making more money, uh, yeah, and the whole nine yards. So, um, I guess the more, uh, the more valuable you become, the more they want you. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Okay, well, absolutely. That's a, that's a good thing. So we got to try and figure it out, find a balance. That's still going to work for you. And and there's nothing wrong with when the time is right and the person is right. This is very important. And the timing and the person is right to have a conversation about, hey, is there any flexibility in me being able to do this so that I can accomplish this in my personal life, et cetera, because it's very important to me. But you got to pick the right time and the right person. Pick and choose my battles. Yes, I get that. Yes. All right, Henry, you're up against the clock. Okay, you're running out of time. Is there anyone else behind me? There could be. Okay. You guys have a great evening. Thank you. No, thank you, sir. You've got to make it work. That's the bottom line. He's he's motivated. So that's the important thing. you just got to find a way to get those meetings in around his schedule. That's right. they got a lot of meetings in and I, and that's and they have them at all times of day just for because of that. that reason. Yeah. All right, let's go to William San Jose. William, go. Hey Orvo, uh, my question is: uh, if a person in recovery is working on assertiveness, what is a good step in the right direction to start working on being assertive? Um, uh, pretty much just like setting boundaries and everything, uh, and standing up for yourself. Henry, repeat your question. I mean, sorry, not Henry. William, repeat your question and speak a little louder, please. Oh, I'm sorry. A uh, person in recovery um, working on assertiveness, what are good steps in the right direction to accomplish that? Work, you said assertiveness? Yeah, assertiveness. Okay, okay. There's many different tools a person can use in the recovery process to uh, practice being assertive. Uh, the first thing they must conquer, though, usually when a person lacks assertiveness, there's some fear in there, F-E-A-R, fear in there, that must be conquered. Okay. So here's a saying for you. Courage, so you can, it's going to require a little bit of courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the conquest of it. So if you want to become assertive, appropriately assertive, of course, then you must have you must develop the courage to conquer that fear. So whatever it is that you're talking about being assertive about, assertive with, whether it's speaking your mind, taking a stand, taking a position, what wherever the assertiveness is that you're trying to build up, okay, usually at the root of the lack of assertiveness is Fear is in there somewhere, and so we got to conquer that. 
Yeah, it's it's mostly um like saying no. Uh have a problem saying no. Uh I guess it'd be a fear of not being accepted. I was just gonna say that sounds like an acceptance problem. Yeah. It can but the way you word it is appropriate. It could be a fear of not being accepted. So guess what we gotta do with that? Hello? Yes, yes, yes. What do you have yeah, to do I, with that fear? Of uh, not being accepted. Go ahead. I'm asking you. Oh, um not caring about what other people think about me. That's right. Take that fear, put it in your back pocket, and do what's right. Do what you need to do. And the more yeah. you do that, the less you will feel that fear or feel that need to be accepted. Okay. Okay. Thank you. They call that, they, they call that I think, stop feeding that monster. So every, every time you give in to it, you're feeding that monster, and that, and that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Stop feeding it. I'll let it starve. Courage. Courage. Start feeding courage and stop. Starve the beast. You said it. Starve the beast. Good stuff. (laughs) Right on, right on. Thank you, Orville. Thank you, William. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fear of acceptance. It's a big one. Well, it ties into why I always say we should practice. I'm a proponent of practicing and role-playing these things because when people leave their treatment settings or if they're in recovery and they're in their native environments, they're going to be faced with things. They're going to, they're going to test their their acceptance. Big time. Big time. Big time. And so... We have to develop some steel spines and some uh, courage to uh, withstand that onslaught that's going to be coming your way. And so we've got to practice it. Role play it. So for him, if we had more time, it would have been, give me an example of in the past you've accepted that now you want to take a stand and be more assertive with and not accept. Right. And then we would, not we on the air, but I would say to him, so now what I want you to do is find someone that you could practice your response with in terms of how you're going to respond differently in the future. And every time that you actually do that in real life, actually respond differently, and you experience what it feels like to actually do that, and it's a great feeling, um, it's a natural high, you know, those yeah. endorphins yeah. kick in. You then, it empowers you to feel confident in doing it again. That's right. And again, and again, until it becomes second nature. That's right. And that's, and that's where we want to get to, where that becomes instinct, second nature to stand up, be assertive, say what you have to say, do what's right, and not worry about what your quote-unquote friend may say. They're really a friend. They're going to be on your side anyway. Anyway. But that's really the test of whether or not they're a friend or they're a foe. Yeah, that's very true. That's right. And like you said, having it become second nature is a big part of it. Um, you want it to be kind of 
your natural response. Mm-hmm. Have it that that's who you are now, um, and that's foreign for people at the beginning. Which is why, like you said, role playing and things of that nature are very important because you want to take the foreign nature out of it. Right. You want it to become comfortable. You want it to become just something roll, that you're used to. Rolling right off your tongue. That's right. How much time we got? We got about a minute. We got one minute, so I do see I do see a caller on hold here. They'll have to call back next week. Hopefully, they can call in a little uh, sooner instead of at the show's close. But do I have time to read a question? <clears throat> if yeah, it all depends on uh, how much gravity the the question contains and how much you're willing to give it in the answer. Um, let's see here. Don't rush me. Oh, you're getting rushed now. You, I mean, we're seconds now. <laughs> no pressure. You're trying to make me panic. Well, we can count this down in seconds at this point. <laughs> All right, Paige asks, how do you deal with anger in 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 in, in treat while you're in treatment? And, and she, I think she called in and asked that question. So this is a short one. Use the tools. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because she specifically asks in treatment, yeah. huh? Yeah. So. I'm sure they got tools. Use the tools. Is that good? Is that short enough? Uh, that was pretty short. That okay. was good. That was right on right. point. Now we'll, we'll we'll give this one a little bit more uh, in-depth answer next week. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, okay. Thank you, folks, again, for anyone who called in just to listen, uh, called in to participate. Uh, again, a special thanks to our guest, our special guest that we had today for the interview, Dr. Jaimez. Yep. Again, we appreciate everybody's support out there, and we wish you all a safe week and a happy weekend. We will catch you all next Tuesday.
that's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you gonna let us pull you down and make you cry? Don't you know, don't you know, it's a change.